Imagine bold, naturally aged Tillamook cheddar slices melting over a burger, eating handfuls of thick-cut cheddar shreds straight from the bag, taking a bite out of an irresistibly bold block of extra-sharp cheddar cheese. We know you want to get back to streaming, but wasn't it nice to daydream about cheese for a bit? Tillamook Cheddar, extraordinary dairy. Who doesn't love a classic chocolate chip cookie? Famous Amos has been making them since the 70s, 1975 to be exact. With semi-sweet chocolate chips and a satisfying crunch, it's everything classic in one bite-sized cookie. And fans couldn't get enough. That's right. You'll find our original recipe, the one you know and love, in every bag of Famous Amos original chocolate chip cookies. Find Famous Amos anywhere you buy your favorite snacks. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. The year is 1934. A girl meets a guy. A girl marries a guy. Her dad makes her leave the guy. Girl runs away. Girl meets another guy. The movie? It happened one night. everybody and welcome to unspooled i'm amy nicholson and i am paul Shear, and this is the podcast where each week we watch one film from the afi top 100 list of the best films of all time the 2007 edition to see if they really are as good as people say do they hold up and how have they influenced the films we watch today uh, on this episode we'll be talking about it happened one night but before we get into that we're going to go back and talk a little bit about charlie chaplin's modern times which people really just love. Um, but I just want to remind people that you can always visit us online at our Tee Public store where we have amazingly cool, fun shirts, uh, one raising money for small independent theaters. Uh, you can go to tpublic.com slash stores slash unspooled. And you can even head over to Podswag to get, I mean, this is the last couple of weeks to get this amazing unspooled poster that basically tracks your whole journey along with this show for our 100 films on the AFI list. I love this poster designed by Scott C. And we're kind of coming to the end here, Amy. So this is your last chance to to get this up in your collection and, and watch along with us. So, uh, you know, last time to plug this amazing poster. Oh, Paul, I cannot believe that it. it is the end of the road. We have made it to the year 2020. So much has happened. And actually, while we're plugging things, I have a new episode of Zoom coming out that is very about 2020. It is about... Hollywood and politics, specifically about how Hollywood has been influencing elections since the 1920s, this back and forth from the classic studio moguls getting invested in politics, and then this idea of politicians as celebrities and how Hollywood has evolved how we think of political candidates. It's really, 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 really interesting stuff that I love diving into. So if you're curious about it, check out my new episode of Zoom. It will be out this week. Um, I also want to plug something that I have nothing uh, to do with. 
It's an amazing documentary that just popped up on Netflix. It's called uh, Disclosure, a great documentary about the history of trans people in uh, film. Uh, it really blew my mind, and film and TV, I should say. It's it's really, really well done. Uh, it's on Netflix right now, and I think if you like film history, uh, you will love it. And I think it's a super important documentary, really, really good. Um, and there's one thing that I am involved with that I will also plug, which is uh, the last episode of my show that I did for Marvel, which is called The World's Greatest Book Club with Paul Shear. You can go find it uh, on the Marvel uh, page on YouTube, where I interview people about their favorite comic books. If you're a comic reader, great. If you're not, fine. But we also are supporting local uh, small comic book shops. And this week, we did something really special. We actually talked to a comic book owner in Minneapolis about his store, uh, post-COVID and just kind of got an inside look of what's going on there and uh, trying to help his GoFundMe. So definitely check that out. You can type in Paul Shear, Jason Manzukis, Marvel into Google, and that will probably pop up because Jason Manzukis is the guest this week. So uh, that's that. And Amy, my question to you right now simply is, modern times, do people want it on the list or not? Oh, do they ever? I will start by reading a comment from our buddy Shay Casey. He says, you know, the thing that blew me away about this movie was how, well, modern it seemed. It's a silent film, but Chaplin uses so many inventive techniques to trick you into thinking it's not. And out of all of his leading ladies, Paulette Goddard plays her character in such a way that you could easily drop her into a more recent film and not bat an eye. She's so far ahead of her time in this and is totally magnetic, almost steals the movie away from Chaplin. Easy yes vote. And that is not easy to do, steal a film away from Chaplin. Which makes me also want to give a shout out to my buddy Jason Zinneman, who has been using part of Quarantine to um, introduce his daughter to silent films. And he's been giving her silent film learning segments, showing her a bunch of films, listening to our podcast, for example, about it. And she loved Modern Times and Chaplin, too. So that makes me so happy. We're all going to love silent films, man. I've actually been doing something similar. I've been giving my kids the silent treatment uh, the entire quarantine, (laughs) and uh, it's really been working. Uh, Well, Ed Dykusen really enjoyed our takedown of Mickey Mouse. He goes, when I was a kid in the 80s, the culture at large really pushed hard to the idea that Mickey Mouse was this universally beloved friend to all children. But I almost never saw any of these cartoons, so I felt zero connection to him. He was like a rich, divorced dad who swooped into your life once a year and expected you to fall all over him. Meanwhile, Bugs Bunny was on TV constantly, and he was hilarious. He was like the scraggly stepdad with permanent stubble and a closet of Hawaiian shirts who'd play with you all the time in the backyard. Well, this is really, uh, I mean, post-Father's Day, what a great... uh, analysis of (laughs) of mickey and bugs um but uh really (laughs) really fun stuff there uh and finally uh from modern times there's a great uh little comment from lewis camara they wanted to shout out roland tolleroth uh chaplin's longtime cinematographer who never gets enough credit the knock against chaplin as a director was that he wasn't particularly inventive with the camera because he was more focused on telling the story through performance but he and tolleroth created some indelible images like the final shot of modern times which is one of my favorite uh final shots ever and the light in it is really nice uh so that's actually nice we don't we you know we don't really talk about his cinematographer i think when you talk about chaplin you always kind of view him as a, a monolith he did it all he talked to everybody we even talked about that in the show like he was so involved in every detail but Great people work with great people. It's, you know, undoubtedly that's the way it goes, even if they don't want to admit it. So, Amy, last week we asked a question about what romantic comedy belongs on the AFI Top 100 list, because uh, there's not that many. And we got some great responses. Take a listen to these answers. I am going to say that uh, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, so good and so challenging, I'd love to see it on the list. 
My favorite rom-com of all time, and I think maybe the best uh, couple in any rom-com, would be in Harold and Maude. I'm going to say Stanley Doan's Two for the Road uh, for no other reason than that Albert Finney and Audrey Hepburn refer to each other affectionately as bitch and bastard. You've got mail or the shop around the corner, but I would argue for you've got mail um, because it is really representative of like a moment in time. And also it's by Nora Ephron. So what could be better? I'd like to cast my vote for Scott Pilgrim versus the world. Snap out of it and put Moonstruck on the AFI list. Oh, Paul, you know that my heart went pitter-patter at Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Michelle Gondry is just stunning. I absolutely adore everything about that film. I mean, to me, that is one of the greatest films we've made in the last two decades. You know, I have to say one of the movies that wasn't mentioned, um, although I really did enjoy that Scott Pilgrim's on this list, one of the films that wasn't mentioned that really made a big connection to me was Say Anything. I love that movie. I don't know if it holds up or if it was just hit me at the right time, but Ioni Sky, John Cusack, I mean, you can't get better than that. Where's my Cameron Crowe romantic comedies on this list? I need one. Oh, no, you're telling me you have done the boombox thing. You did, didn't you? When did you do no, it? God, so who no, God, Who did you do it to? What song did you No play? one, no one. I would never do that. I mean, look, there's some problem. I guess, uh, is there problematic things there? I don't know. Yeah, he's kind of like a stalker, right? Yeah, I guess that's the whole thing. All right, he's canceled. Anyway, Amy... <laughs> Are you ready to get into this uh, great romantic comedy? Or I should say, are you ready to unspool it? The year is 1934. The infant son of famous aviator Charles Lindbergh is kidnapped for $50,000 ransom. Unfortunately, the baby was killed. The first photograph sightings of the sea monster in Scotland's Loch Ness are entered into the cryptid canon. In Louisiana, the FBI tracked down and killed bank robbers Bonnie and Clyde. Oh, so sad. And after becoming the chancellor, Adolf Hitler declares himself the Fuhrer of Germany. Donald Duck makes his big screen debut in a short film called The Wise Little Hen. The popular films are The Thin Man, one of my favorites, The Count of Monte Cristo, Cleopatra, and today's film It Happened One Night. It ranks number 46 on the AFI Top 100 list, having dropped 11 points from its position at 35 in 1997. Let's uh, take a listen to some of the amazing banter in this film. Oh, now, don't you start telling me I shouldn't dunk. Of course you shouldn't. You don't know how to do it. Dunking's an art. Don't let it soak so long. A dip and flop in your mouth. You gotta hang there too long and get soft and fall off. It's all a matter of timing. Oh, I'll write a book about it. <laughs> Thanks, Professor. Mm. Here's close to show you. 20 millions and you don't know how to dunk. I'd change places with a plumber's daughter any day. Amy. It Happened One Night, who's in it? What's it about? It Happened One Night. It is possibly the ur-text for the modern romantic comedy as we know it. Woman who's uh, full of personality and squabbly meets man who's full of personality and squabbly. They squabble, 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 and they fall in love. The woman here is actually our Cleopatra. It is Claudette Colbert, the one, the only, the great beauty. And our man is, again, the one, the only, there is no other form like him on the planet, Clark Gable. He's a newspaper man. She's an heiress escaping her overprotective father to try to get with her lamezoid wannabe pilot, blah, 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 husband. Um, and this, their whole hijinks are uh, directed by Frank Capra. This is one of his early hits that really put Capra on the A-list and made him the director that we have seen several times through this list. Well, you know, Amy, I got to admit, 
when I first started this film, I was excited because it was a Capra film, but as it, you know, started to unspool itself, uh, I was like, ah, oh, Clark Gable, Claudette Colbert, this is not going to have the energy that I want. It's going to be fine. Like we should respect it, but I'm not going to like it. And I really went in with that attitude and I cannot tell you how much this film surprised me, made me laugh and brought me in every single time that I wanted to check out. It is really a film that captures the DNA of the modern romantic comedy. Everything that we know of this, you know, love hate relationship, every McConaughey movie, every Kate Hudson movie put together. I mean, this, the DNA is in this film and, and more too. Uh, I really just kind of fell in love with this and, and, and I loved Clark Gable. I felt like I saw him in a way that I had not seen him in before. And yeah, this movie really worked for me. I love that. And also because this is a movie that's made in 1934, you get a little bit of that layering of the depression in here. You know, this is a movie that I felt like watching it is in conversation with Sullivan's Travels, which is going to come later. You know, what happens when somebody who has money and privilege goes on the road and sees what the country is really like, has to learn what poverty is like firsthand. Actually, in a way, I almost feel like there's a conversation happening between it happened one night, uh, Sullivan's travels, and in between modern times. You know, what is it like when you're poor and in love and the world is conspiring against you and making your life difficult? You know, how do you overcome the the world itself? Yeah, I, I think when I was looking at the year it came out, and everything that went on during this year, I'm also thinking that a film like this probably is really well-received or wanting to be embraced because there is so much darkness going on in the world. I mean, everything that I read in that opening you know, monologue about 1934 is pretty dark. And I think what this movie manages to do is ground something in reality, like you're talking about. You're seeing the seams of America but it also is giving you laughs. It's, it, it is, I think, highlighting the imperfection of the world that we live in. It's not kind of making it glossy, and it's also not making it like Grapes of Wrath. It's, it's finding this fun middle ground that I feel like is relatable. And, I, and, you know, all the bus scenes in particular, like Greyhound took off after this movie because people thought, oh, I can explore the country by bus? Like, it really happened. I mean, this movie you know, introduced these ideas, but also there's unsavory elements on those buses and there's unsavory elements on these trains. And there was something, uh, I don't know, it it felt like it walked this really interesting line. I love that you went straight to the bus of it all because (laughs) I I guess I'd never really thought of this as a bus movie before, even though I wonder if it subliminally got into my mind because I know around the time I saw uh, it happen one night for the first time, I took a Greyhound bus from Oklahoma to New York for spring break and I was like, oh, that's what bus life is like, right? right. But when this movie comes out in 1934, bus movies were trendy. Bus movies were like rollerblading movies of the 90s. Everybody's like, oh, we got to get a bus movie. Like there are so many movies that it was just like, it felt like to people that they were, that this movie could be a cash-in. You know, the original title of It Happened One Night was Night Bus and they were like, Way too trendy. We can't just get on that bus thing. The weird fun fact, if you go to... Night bus sounds like a really bad Jason Statham movie. (laughs) I'm going on the night bus. Get me on the night bus. (laughs) If you go to the Greyhound website, they're on their corporate website. They have a corporate timeline of all the important moments in Greyhound history. In 1934, they say... 
The Academy Award-winning movie It Happened One Night, starring Clark Gable and Claudette Colbert, prominently features a greyhound bus in the story, spurring interest in bus travel nationwide. I mean, you don't have to tell me that because I'm on that Greyhound bus corporate site every day just looking at the news. <laughs> what are they saying? What are they doing? Now, you you had some bus experiences. Is it like what's happening in the movie? Or are people getting up there singing the daring young man on the flying trapeze? Are you hearing that? You know, I have a few bus memories that stand out in particular. One, I was a gigantic idiot and kind of poor because I was in college. And I thought, you know what I'll do to save money? For my food, I'm just going to bring a bunch of cut vegetables and scordalia. Do you know what scordalia is? No. Okay. It's a garlic-based bread dip from Greece where you soak bread and garlic and then puree it. Did not occur to me that I would be the worst person on the world. For you are one of those people that I hate on an airplane. Like, it's I like know. you don't bring stinky food on there. Oh, man. It didn't occur oh, to man. me. It didn't occur to me. And then the other things I think about is that we went through Pennsylvania on our way to New York. And uh, there were a lot of Amish people who got on the bus. And I remember mm-hmm. being like, oh, that's cool. I didn't realize Amish people were allowed to ride buses. And then an Amish person sat next to me. And I was really worried whether or not I could turn off on and off the light. I'd never met an Amish person. I feel like there are all these rules I didn't know. And when we yeah. stopped at a bus stop, I watched an Amish man try to buy a granola bar from a vending machine. But he didn't know where the granola bar came out of. And I wasn't sure if it was okay if I told him. I, 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 wow. It was, it's so interesting. I love that you respected the Amish so much that you didn't want to help them or shine light on them. That was the, Oh, no. I didn't really even know the them. rules. I, I know. know. I, I didn't even know that there were rules. And maybe that's my own naivete. Like, I, I didn't realize that, yeah, like that. I mean, you know, you could have, I mean, this could have been his rumspringer. I mean, you could have really opened them up in a big way. I know. The Amish, I'm realizing, um, especially in the last couple of weeks, are pretty cool. I need to learn more about the Amish. That, By that, the way, that's my only encounter. Did you notice um, in this film that uh, Capra does his little cameo, uh, like his little Hitchcockian cameo here? He is. Uh, one of the passengers on the bus singing the daring young man in the flying trapeze. He's actually the one who uh, sings the third couplet in the film, and he's actually pretty good. Oh, I love that. Well, this isn't him, but let's play some singing. Let's because it's a great moment of camaraderie on this bus. Yeah. Now he's playing with a mist like a cat with a mouse. His eyes would undress every girl in the house. Perhaps he is better described as a louse, and still people came just the same. Now he smiled from the bar on the people below, and one night he smiled on my love. She blew him a kiss, and she hollered, bravo, and he hung by his snuggle from a had a whole directorial philosophy about moments like where everybody in the bus stops to sing a song. He said, you know, sometimes your story has to stop and you just let the audience look at your people. The characters have no great worries for the moment and they like each other's company and that's it. He really made an argument and proved it in this scene that when you give your characters a chance to breathe, so it's not just like plot, 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 that makes people love them and that makes people get invested. I love that. You know, I couldn't help but see the similarities in this film and planes, trains, and automobiles. Uh, I know I talked about it having the DNA of all the romantic comedies that we've kind of grown up and loved, but planes, trains, and automobiles literally has a singing on the bus scene. It 
is two people from the different sides of the tracks. It, um, and obviously it's, it's growing with friendship, but I, I couldn't help but think that John Hughes was very inspired by this film as they travel cross country on different ways and have to share rooms. I mean, you know, in planes, trains, automobiles, they share a bed. They don't put up the curtain there, but, uh, there was something about it that I was like, oh, I can't not see the similarities here. Oh, that's interesting. And that makes me also wonder about something like, you know, the Robert De Niro um, movie Midnight Run, you know, where he's oh, a, yes. a, a, a bail man, bounty hunter, you know, well, on the run getting favorites. Charles Godin. I mean, that's the same thing, like odd couples forced to navigate the American countryside together. Whereas yeah. at the same time, you got Bonnie and Clyde just like, we're in sync, we're kicking it, here we go. And both of those movies, uh, Midnight Run and Plain Strings and Automobiles, does exactly what you just talked about that Capra was speaking of. Taking moments to just sit in the characters. Like, there are moments in those films, and oft- often in comedy movies, it's just a conversation. Uh, and you're getting a bunch of jokes at that moment. And I feel like these are why those films continue to be relevant because I think you really connect to these characters. I think John Hughes does that exceptionally well across the board, Uh, you know, to just give you enough plot, but really embrace who you're watching. You come out loving the characters, even if you don't love the movie. Yeah. And in this scene, you know, in particular with the singing, you get actual moments of character. I think you get to see that Clark Gable's, you know, drunken newspaper man, is the kind of guy who will belt out at the top of his lungs, that he will participate. He's a joiner. He's enthusiastic about moments like this. And you get to watch Claudette Colbert learn these lyrics. You know, she doesn't know this song. You watch her listen to the chorus and then start singing along on the second verse. You watch her get into the moment too. And so it's not even a waste of energy. It, it allows them to show who they are. Speaking about knowing who these characters are, this film does such a great job at introducing both of these characters. Again, it's one of those classic structures, but this is the one that I think, you know, this is the movie that launches a, a thousand ships. But when we first meet Claudette Colbert, you get so much out of her in that first scene in the stateroom and she jumps off the side of a boat and she escapes via, like, via swimming, which it, she's just a badass. From the minute you meet her, the whole, like, kind of, um, not torture, but the tempting with the, the piece of steak and then when we meet Clark Gable's character, you know so much about him instantly. It's really great writing uh, that you get these characters within a scene. I was watching a movie and uh, it'll remain nameless, but I was like, this first act is an hour. Like, I get it. I get these characters. You can do so much so quickly in a comedy, I think, to establish who your characters are and then just go on the journey with them. And uh, I feel like Sometimes films forget how much you can just show the audience so quickly and how effective that is because it actually starts the movie so much sooner because we, we got them. We've made our assumptions and now we're just, we're in the story. Yeah. Let's actually listen to a little bit of her fight with her dad at the very beginning, because you I think some of the information we're picking up here is, you know, not just her circumstances, that she comes from an incredibly wealthy family that has its own yacht and uses its yacht as a prison. We're mad you got married, so we're going to hold you prisoner on a yacht with these butlers. You get a sense of how her dynamic is with her dad, who is overprotecting to the point of he needs to back off majorly. And you see how living in this environment 
has shaped her, you know, that she has become a person who has to be loud and stubborn and fight in order to have any oxygen in her family at all. I've won a lot of arguments with the lead pipe. Outside of the fact that you don't like him, you haven't got a thing against King. He's a fake, Ellie. He's one of the best flyers in the country. He's no good and you know it. You married him only because I told you not to. You've been telling me what not to do ever since I can remember. That's because you've always been a stubborn idiot. I come from a long line of stubborn idiots. Well, don't shout so. You may work up an appetite. I'll shout if I want to. I'll scream if I want to. All right, scream. If you don't let me off this boat, I'll break every piece of furniture in this room. Here, 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 here now. Have a nice piece of juicy steak. You don't have to eat it. Just smell it. It's a poem. Here's the thing with her character, right? This is a girl who has been given everything and goes on this arc where here she is at the very beginning of the film refusing to eat. You know, she's on a literal hunger strike, throwing steak out the window. And within a couple of days, she's going to be so hungry. She's going to consider eating a lowly uncooked raw carrot. You know, she's going to realize <laughs> the value of the food that she's throwing away. By the way, were carrots so shunned in the 1930s? I mean, when she looks at him eating that carrot, it's like, what are you thinking? I mean, she would be so mortified by the baby carrot boom. Uh, I mean, like, I, I'm eating carrots all the time. I mean, th- that it seems so out of place. Like, wow, I guess carrots really, uh, maybe this movie brought carrots into the mainstream. I don't know. I don't know. I was wondering that, too, because I have a fixation with looking at old menus from restaurants because mm-hmm. I love the way they were written. They're written almost like they expect you to, to order nine courses, like here's your cheeses and your crudités yeah. and blah, blah, blah. And they tend to have, in my picturing of them, you know, a little a little part where you can get like raw celery and carrots, kind of crudite at the beginning. That right? was on so, the table a lot of the times. I mean, I've gone yeah. to this one restaurant that's kind of on the way to Disneyland out here. And it's like, a, it looks like it's stuck in time from the 1960s. The, the food is, everything. It's a great uh, little spot that I'm forgetting the name of. But yeah, like one of the things I love at those restaurants, I've been to a few, is like they just put down a, a, a plate of raw vegetables in front of you and you can just salt them up and, and go to town. Exactly. So I don't know if she's just a picky eater or if carrots were considered de classe. If anybody knows, I'm very curious to know this. Answer. Yeah, let's get to the bottom of this carrot issue. I mean, this movie definitely started a lot of trends, uh, but I want to know if it started the carrot trend. Okay, but as we're figuring that out, Let's keep talking about her character a bit, because I think Mm -hmm. it's very easy to see her as, quote unquote, typical spoiled brat, right? I mean, that's Mm -hmm. what Gable sees her as for a really long time. Like, here you are, you're rich, you're pampered, you get everything. I mean, Brad is his nickname for her when he loves her. The more Even when he likes her, he calls her a brat. But she has this monologue, and I didn't clip it, but in the middle of the film, she talks about how living in this cloistered, ultra, ultra, ultra 1% society... She's never gotten to do anything on her own. She talks about sneaking out one time to go shopping on her own and how it was the greatest freedom of her life. And I appreciate that she gets roundedness in that way, where she's not just this complete diva who's had everything. She's had so much that she almost had nothing. Well, I didn't really see her as spoiled or the brat, like the taming of the shrew, right? That's kind of the traditional, you know, oh, I got to teach her not to be you know, for lack of a better term, like a real bitch, right? Like, that's like the idea. Like, but she's not like that. Like she, to me, seems so 
yes, she has money and that's, and that's something, but she has a voice and she doesn't seem petulant. I, I just loved her character. I mean, from the moment that you have her jumping off a boat and swimming away, like, I was like, oh, I'm in, I'm into her. Like just the way that she, you know, pushes her dad off at the stake. Like I already mentioned these things, but it helped me really connect to her character. And yes, he will view her as being rich. He will view her as being, uh, you know, uh, just, you know, too good for anything else. But she isn't really like that. She may be turned off by certain things because she's never done them, but she never feels to me prissy. She never seems to be complaining. She goes with the flow. Like when they start that fight in the motel room, boom, she's in it. She's having fun. She's doing a voice. She is fully committed. And I feel like there's a sense of fun and play with her from the minute one. And it's something I think that movies forget at a certain point. You make your, they're an odd couple and you make them, you make one person so wrong that you have to make them right sometimes. And and I feel like this movie does a great job of just saying, here are two people with very different perspectives. I think that's what Planes, Trains, and Automobiles does too. Like no one's wrong in that scenario. It's just like they're, they're just, two different people and you're forcing them to come together. Um, yeah. And I mean, she has elements to her, like she's very entitled. You know, she imagines mm-hmm. that when she gets off the bus, that it will wait for her 20 minutes and it's okay if she's right. late, which, to, you know, that's, I guess how you would feel like if you only ever had chauffeurs and bodyguards watching. Right. Every she doesn't move. understand the world. Like, yeah, like, yeah. I mean, it's, I, I chalked it up to her being like naive to not, you know, not being catered to not like, she expects it. It's just sort of like, well, yeah, she's, this is all new to her. She's like a, she's, you know, this is the first time. Yeah. So it's interesting to contrast her with somebody like say Catherine Hepburn and bringing a baby, you know, mm-hmm. because sometimes they call it happened one night, one of the earliest screwballs, but I don't know if it fits that mold because to me, a screwball is somebody like that Catherine Hepburn who exists in a world beyond all logic. You know, she comes in like this wrecking ball. Here's an orderly man. And she's like, chaos reigns, chaos reigns. I have a leopard. We're just going for it now. But Claudette Colbert has her tiny little shapely feet on the ground as much as she can, given everything. You know, it's not so much chaos disrupting order as it is just like two hard-headed people bashing their heads against each other. Yeah, they both have ways of doing something. and But they also are sticking it to their man right and i mean like i mean that in um the sense of like the man right clark gable is sticking it to his boss she's sticking it to her dad you know they're both coming at a position of trying to of basically trying to be heard you know they they, they're more similar than not those opening scenes kind of prove that and i think that's how they get along like i didn't i didn't find their romance to be surprising because I felt like they just needed to spend time with each other. I'm Katie Rich. I'm one of the hosts of Vanity Fair's Little Gold Men podcast. Every week, we cover the ups and downs of the Oscar race, from Barbenheimer to the Golden Globes controversy, and much more. We also have weekly interviews with some of the year's biggest contenders, like Emma Stone, Paul Giamatti, and America Ferreira. Whether you're a Hollywood insider or just want to win your office's Oscar pool, listen to Little Gold Men, available on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening now. 
I mean, sometimes I struggle with Clark Gable in this movie. I struggle with how much I still adore him because mm-hmm. he's doing that Clark Gable thing of being an asshole. You know, I, I, it, to me, I have to make sure that when I watch this film, I recalibrate and Clark Gable isn't just this voice of the proletariat reason because he's pretty mean and condescending to her a lot of the way. He's, I guess that pride you see from him in that early phone call where he will never admit that he's wrong to his boss and that he has to always be a person who gets the last word. That has to continue through in the way that he treats her because, I mean, he's even arguing with her about piggyback riding and, and the way she dunks a donut. I mean, he's picks on every little thing she does. I mean, here, let's listen to him give her some grief about piggyback riding. I wish you'd stop being playful. Oh, so sorry. Sorry. You know, this is the first time in years I've ridden piggyback. This isn't piggyback. Of course it is. You're crazy. I remember distinctly my father taking me for a piggyback ride. And he carried you like this, I suppose. Yes. Your father didn't know beans about piggyback riding. My uncle, mother's brother, has four children, and I've seen them ride piggyback. I bet there isn't a good piggyback rider in your whole family. I never knew a rich man yet who could piggyback ride. You're prejudiced. You show me a good piggybacker, and I'll show you a real human. Now, you take Abraham Lincoln, for instance, a natural-born piggybacker. Where do you get off of that stuffed shirt family of yours? My father was a great piggybacker. Here, hold this a minute. I mean, that made me, I mean, that makes me laugh. I don't, maybe you're right that he's picking on her. I just feel like he, like, he's so unwilling to see things in a different way. I think he's more, he's got more of the, the, the attributes of someone who is wealthy. Like, what, you're doing it like that? Like, where she's willing to try things, like, he's so stuck in his ways. I thought that was kind of fun. And the, the dunking the donut scene I watched it too. I was like, they're doing it the exact same way. And that's, I think, kind of makes it funny too. Like his dunking is, is pretty similar to her dunking. It's not like she's not doing anything wrong. You know, it's not like she is, uh, I don't know. There was something interesting about that. I, I actually kind of found him to be very George Clooney-like and maybe in a, in a way George Clooney is a little bit more charming, but I feel like he could give that kind of lip to people. Yeah, I mean, to me, I almost love Clark Gable best when he's not doing any talking at all in this movie. You know, the way that he looks at her when she is um, trying not to sit next to him on the bus. And he gives her that look of just amusement and sarcasm and, oh, there she goes. Watch her. But also appreciative of her stubbornness. Yeah. Like he, he has a way of silently looking at a woman that is just like, whoa. Oh, it's, it's almost too intense. Uh, I'll take it. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I, I love that he's also a good guy. We're talking about, yes, he is very sarcastic and, and I, I would, I'm, I'm having a trouble saying that he's cruel, but I think that he, you know, every time that we see him, his actions are speaking louder than his words. Like he's helping get her bag. He doesn't get it. He's, you know, helping scare that guy off who wants to collect the money. You know, he, he does a lot for her, but yet he would never admit it, right? That that's kind of his mo. Like, you're never going to see me be nice, but I'm going to be nice. Oh no! On, on the side, is he? If he teases you, it means he likes you. I mean, look, Amy. There's, I think there's some truth to that. I mean, he, de- but he's also on top of that, literally trying to help her too. So 
like it's I think it's the banter of the time. It reminds me of like, you know, his girl Friday. It's so rapid fire. It's so, you know, playful and and cutting. And, you know, I think it is also kind of this Capra mentality of these characters. They're not like, they're not wholly good. They're not wholly bad. They're, they're real. They're a little bit more real and, and, uh, and have flaws. There's something about it that I don't know. It really, I thought they both, popped for me as far as their energies and attitudes. I didn't think one was meaner, but it's interesting to think he was mean to her. I got to look at it again. I kind of did. I thought he, I thought he had a real negging point of view. I mean, he spanks her on the ass, which, you know, if you're my boyfriend, maybe if you're some random dude, I don't know about that, but did he um, start negging? I mean, is this, is this kind of like a Neil Strauss kind of character? Is this the game? Is this, you know, is he, is he kind of trying to get in there by, you know, making her, you know, being aloof so she'll come towards. Oh, Neil Strauss, who I sometimes wonder if he started the first domino that helped ruin the planet. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think if Neil Strauss could be in Clark Gable's body, he could actually be a nicer person and this would work out better for the everybody on the planet. Let's talk about sexy Clark Gable a little bit more because you said that he can, you know, really dress down a woman, I guess, with his eyes. You know, and and I think that in this movie, people were really surprised because he did something that hadn't really been done before, which is when he's getting undressed in the movie, he's not wearing an undershirt. And it was a real shock to the undershirt wearing male community, so much so that uh, like the under the undergarment industry wanted to like sue this film because they felt like they were losing sales because real men don't wear undershirts. I think that that may just be... Uh, you know, hearsay. I don't know if it's totally true that they <laughs> tried to sue them, but I, I love that idea that like that he had so much power that men are like, I don't wear an undershirt either. And you know, like the, in that one scene, that's pretty amazing. Yeah. I want to play that scene. And I also want to say, I tried to verify this story too, because one of the rumors like it's just printed in books. Like it's a fact is that sales of undershirts dropped 75% after Clark Gable took his shirt off in public. And, um, you know, part of the argument is like, maybe they dropped, but also it was the worst year of the depression. And so maybe mm. people just weren't buying undershirts anyway. So it's sort of like how millennials killed chain restaurants because also who cares about chain restaurants? And also they happened to die right when they were all purchased by bankers who are killing everything anyways. Um, Wait, are that- chain restaurants <laughs> dead? I feel like chain restaurants are the only thing that exists. Oh, I mean, aren't there articles like millennials killed chilies? I, I think, I mean, maybe I, I feel like as someone who's traveled around this country so much, I, I can unequivocally tell you that chain restaurants aren't going anywhere. Maybe fast casual versus like the TGI and the Bennigans. But uh, I, I feel like everywhere I go, I remember I would go to hotels and ask people like, hey, you know, I'm in Tennessee. Like, what's a great place to eat around here? Like, oh, you got to go to that. The Chili's. I'm like, oh, OK. Like they, I, every time I go to a, a place, I'm always trying to find like cool local food. and I would say five out of seven times I'm referred to like Olive Garden. So, I, you know, so uh, there you go. By the way, just so you know, like Clark Cable wasn't not wearing an undershirt uh, just to be sexy. He was not wearing an undershirt because he was trying to keep up with the dialogue. And it was hard for him to keep up the dialogue and take off an undershirt. So they just decided like, you know, lose the undershirt so you can get undressed quicker and keep up with the dialogue. <laughs> well, let's listen to that scene because... I think it's a really good example of something we have to talk about in this episode, which is this seems like one of the sexiest movies ever made with really no nudity, 
no kissing. I mean, the nudity is just seeing Clark Gable without his shirt on and his pants pulled all the way up to his rib cage. And that is about it. And yet there is such a, a thick, almost like humid atmosphere in this scene. You know, it's raining outside. He's saying that they're going to be spending the room in this tiny cabin. And here he is undressing just to make her actually go to the other side of the room to, to leave him alone. Well, I like privacy when I retire. Yes, I'm very delicate in that respect. Prying eyes annoy me. Behold the walls of Jericho. Uh, maybe not as thick as the ones that Joshua blew down with his trumpet, but a lot safer. You see, uh, I have no trumpet. Now, just to show you my heart's in the right place, I'll give you my best pair of pajamas. Uh, do you mind joining the Israelites? You don't want to join the Israelites? All right. Uh, perhaps you're interested in how a man undresses. <laughs> you know, there's a funny thing about that. Quite a study in psychology. No two men do it alike. You know, I once knew a man who kept his hat on until he was completely undressed. Yeah, now he made a picture. Years later, his secret came out. He wore a toupee. Yeah. You know, I have a method all my own. Uh, if you'll notice, the coat came first, then the tie, then the shirt. Now, uh, according to Hoyle, after that, the uh, pants should be next. There's where I'm different. I go for the shoes next. First the right, then the left. After that, it's uh, every man for himself. I love this scene, and it inadvertently sets up a tension in this movie that is so beautifully paid off at the end of the film. You know, Claudette Colbert wouldn't get naked, right, in this film, or wouldn't undress in front of the camera. So they were forced to create this, this scene, this Walls of Jericho, where, you know, um, it, it, I think it, it actually creates something so special. Like, it's one of those happy accidents, and a lot of the times, I think some of our favorite movies have that. Like, without that moment, you don't get the brilliant payoff of the end. You know, the end is, is I just think, magnificent. Like when you hear the horn and see the dropping of the sheet, it's like, oh, what a great, how could you have had the ending of the movie if you didn't have that? And it's all because Claudette Colbert just was, uh, you know, not down with, not down to undress. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, when you think about the struggles that this couple goes on on the road, and this is considered, by the way, you know, one of the last films to sneak in right before the production code, to get in around a time when suddenly you weren't going to be able to have this much sexual tension in a film. Really, when this couple goes on the road, Yes, she's hungry a little bit. And yes, they fight over how to make a donut. But really, the main bulk of their struggles is in what configuration are we, an unmarried man and woman, going to sleep? Are we yes. going to sleep next to each other on a bus? Are we going to sleep in this hayloft? Are we going to sleep in the same room? Are we going to lie and say that we're married? The thrust is just putting them in bed over and over and over again and having them tuck each other into sheets and put coats on each other. It's all about sex without being about sex. I love it. That's what makes it so... Fun. I mean, that's what romantic comedies are. I mean, you don't have the sex in the first act. You got to wait. You got to wait for it. Um, and again, just to kind of call out how Clark Gable is a, a good guy, he pulls her hay out before his hay uh, and gets her a nice little thing. Uh, I will say, as someone who's gone on many a haunted hayride, what a, a terrible place and an awful place to sleep on on hay like that. It would just be up and in you and every part of you. I just imagine the next day you're just pulling hay out from every part. Uh, I've, I've gone on a hayride for an hour, and, and I feel like I'm still finding hay around the house days later. No wonder uh, Preston Sturgis did not want to make hay hay in the hayloft. <laughs> um, 
you know, you're right about how even though the production code isn't here, this movie is very sexual. I think it would have passed muster in the Hayes Code because it, they don't do anything incredibly graphic. It's still alluded to. I mean, what do you think? I mean, like, it doesn't feel like, whoa, I, I can't believe, like, it doesn't, it feels, it still feels chaste, I guess, to me. I, I think to me, it feels like they would have figured out how to nickel and dime it as much as they could. Like, I don't know about this one shot. I don't know about this one shot. I mean, cause it, it's almost unmistakable what they're talking about, you know? Right. And, so, and so it's hard to imagine, it's hard to imagine them not just panicking and trying to figure out what they could do to make this movie less sexy. Even when they sing songs, even when they're singing about the flying trapeze, it's about like lust and people staring at each other. Every inch of this movie is about is about boning, you know? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I wonder if they could even have something like, you know, basically we see that uh, Ellen Andrews, this um, heiress, has three different choices of men she's presented with in this movie. You know, she's presented with her fiance, who is kind of feckless and into money and nobody trusts him for reasons we never figure out. Then she's presented with Clark Gable. And the third one she's presented with is a guy who's asking her on screen to have an affair with him, even though he's married. I, I want to play the shapely scene of this guy that she's sitting next to on the bus. It's a little bit long, but it to me, it just seems so funny. It almost seems like a scene that's made for Twitter. Like I can picture it with clapbacks, you know, like stop yeah. sitting next to girls on buses and man spreading and asking them to have affairs with you. My name's Shapely. Might as well get acquainted. It's going to be a long trip. Gets tiresome later on, especially for somebody like you. You look like you've got class. Yes, sir, with a capital K. And I'm the guy that knows class when he sees it. Believe you me. Ask any of the boys, they'll tell you. Shapely sure knows how to pick them. Yes, sir. Shapely's a name, and that's the way I like them. You made no mistake sitting next to me. Just between us, the kind of mugs you meet on a hop like this ain't nothing to write home with the wife about. You gotta be awful careful who you hit it up with, is what I always say, and you can't be too particular, neither. What's the matter, sister? You ain't saying much. Seems to me you're doing excellently without any assistance. <laughs> That's pretty good. Seems to me you're doing excellently without any assistance. <laughs> well, shut my big nasty mouth. <laughs> Looks like you're one up on me. You know, there's nothing I like better than to meet a high-class mama that can snap back at you. Because the colder they are, the hotter they get. That's what I always say. <laughs> yes, sir. When a cold mama gets hot, boy, how she sizzles. <laughs> now, you're just my type. Believe me, sister, I could go for you in a big way. Fun on the side, shapely, they call me. With accent on the fun, believe you me. Believe you me? You bore me to distraction. <laughs> Looks like you're too up on me now. <laughs> but yeah, so if, like, if you're a single woman and you're in the world and your three choices are this cheating loser who only cares about, you know, having sex with random women on buses, this wealthy airplane loser who only cares about your dad's money, and a drunken newspaper man who's at least going to, you know, put up a blanket and make you feel a little bit comfortable while teasing you mercilessly and throwing his own pajamas at you and making you sleep in his pajamas. It's pretty clear why she picked who she picked. I mean, look, we can all agree that I think men's pajamas are more comfortable. Amy, I, you know, he's doing a, her service. He's like, look, I mean, well, you want to get in a pair of nice, comfy, big old pajamas like that. You don't have to wear anything skimpy and cold. It's, it's a warm thing. I mean, people, you know, men's pajamas has got it going on. I wish they'd I, bring them back. 
<laughs> I will absolutely agree with that. Yeah, you know, whenever I watch movies and the women get into really complicated floaty pajamas with extra exterior coats floating over them and everything, and everything's gauzy and lacy, I think yeah. that is absolutely beautiful, and I would still probably never wear that. <laughs> I'm Katie Rich. I'm one of the hosts of Vanity Fair's Little Gold Men podcast. Every week, we cover the ups and downs of the Oscar race, from Barbenheimer to the Golden Globes controversy, and much more. We also have weekly interviews with some of the year's biggest contenders, like Emma Stone, Paul Giamatti, and America Ferreira. Whether you're a Hollywood insider or just want to win your office's Oscar pool, Listen to Little Gold Men, available on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening now. You know, I want to talk about this relationship that they have. It's the banter is fun. The characters are fun. But Claudette Colbert basically thought she had made one of the worst films ever. Um, And I thought that was really interesting because for someone who thought that she's bringing a level of performance that is. I think so alive and so alert. Like, did you hear anything or do you know anything about the relationship between Claudette Colbert and Clark Gable or Frank Capra? Like what was, what was that working relationship like? Uh, it might kill some of the romance of the movie if I get into it, but yeah, we should, we're going to have, well, of course, of course it's, you know, it's all a fraud. There's no, there's no true love. I mean, all I was thinking during this movie was, you know, was Gable's mouth just smelling like a a cigarette, uh, ashtray. Oh, you don't want to kiss Gable? You wouldn't kiss Gable with that mouth? I mean, I've heard, I've heard, I've heard things. Okay, well, so first, we got to jump into some of the backstory here, which is Claudette Colbert herself. You know, she's the daughter of French immigrants. She moves out here, and she becomes a theater actress in the 20s, and a pretty good one. People really like her in the theater, and she does not want to do movies at all. She's not interested until the Great Depression hits, and she has to do them for money. The first movie that she does is actually with Frank Capra. Um, she does a movie with him in the silent era, and it is considered one of his worst movies ever made, like ever, ever made. It's called For the Love of Mike. It's gone. You can't watch it anymore. It was his first flop. And she said that doing that movie with Capra was so bad that she will, quote, never make another film. I mean, that movie was so bad that for Capra, he didn't have money. The studio didn't like him anymore. And he had to hitchhike back from the set to Los Angeles. Like, it was a bad scene. Whoa, they abandoned him on set? Yeah. So there's some bad blood from her experience with film, with Capra, all of this being tied together. But she did have to go to Hollywood and start making movies because theater work was really drying up during the Depression. And because she was a theater actress, she had this great elocution. You know, she could speak really well. She was never that comfortable with cameras. She always liked being on stage because she was nervous about her face. She felt like she shouldn't photograph well. As a big cheekboned woman with also a kind of round nose, I have a lot of empathy for her. (laughs) <laughs> Big cheekbone women with round noses, we do not photograph very well. We have to be very careful. But yeah, so she was very self-conscious always in front of cameras. And she felt like if the lighting was just a little bit off, if the angle is a little bit off, she would be considered ugly, which is hard to imagine, almost impossible to imagine. But, you know, movie ugly, I suppose. And nobody would want to work with her again because she didn't feel like she looked like the average actress. So because of that, she gets this reputation really early on in Hollywood for being difficult. She learned a ton about lighting and she learned a ton about cinematography because she was so particular about lighting her face and photographing it. She would make people redo camera scenes if she felt like the camera was not at an angle that showed her to her best advantage because she was like, this is my career on the line. You know, we need to photograph me correctly. So everybody was like, Claudette Colbert, 
we don't want to deal with her. She is a biatch. Was basically it's so funny you say that because I've worked with two actresses, bigger actresses, and they do their own makeup and they have an insanely, um, you know, connected relationship with the DP on a film. And, you know, and, and, and they're right. It, it, you know, it's like, trust the person who lives in that face to give you the best version of that face. Um, it was something I really respected and admired because it sort of, uh, it makes everybody else's job better. It's like, yeah, I know, I know, I know. Trust me. I live with me every day. Exactly. I mean, it kind of makes sense why Julia Roberts would marry her DP, right? You know, yeah. Some, it, and it also makes sense because it is true. I think like when you're a woman in Hollywood, you have to be especially careful how you're photographed because if you're not considered hot, your work dries up faster than if you were a man in Hollywood who's not considered hot. You know, it just it sucks. But anyways. So Claudette Colbert was considered a difficult woman, which means when she reluctantly did this movie because nobody wanted to do this movie. Everybody thought this movie sucked. Everybody thought the script was bad. Myrna Loy, uh, who you adore, said it was like the worst mm. script she had ever read. You know, Capra couldn't wow. get anybody to do this movie. Claudette Colbert only did it under duress when she said, like, double my salary and shoot it in four weeks and then fine, I'll do it. I don't want to work with Capra, but we'll do it. And they gave in because they're so desperate to get somebody to make this movie for them. Everybody said no. Um, you know, the one person who said yes was Constance Bennett. Do you know her at all? I do. Yeah. She was um, part of a really kind of posh family out here. Yeah. Well, she wanted she wanted to do the, the film, but her only caveat was that she was able to produce it. Um, and Columbia was like, oh, yeah, no, no, no. You can't do that. Which I thought was so interesting. Like. You know, for a movie they're having a hard time casting, this one person comes and, and again, it's, you know, keeping her out of power to a certain degree. I thought that was really interesting that uh, I just also love that she wanted to get in that game, that producing game in 1934. Right. Like ahead of her time. Yeah. It's amazing. But yeah. So basically what happened on this set is that Capra and Gable uh, teamed up and made a lot of fun of Claudette Colbert. Like, Capra would pounce on her when she had to be in the bedroom scenes. I don't think she really liked that very much. Wait, and, pounce on her physically? Yeah, pounce on her physically. Um, it's kind of like a joke, like, you're in bed, ha-ha. Or, oh, like, apparently, boy. like, during the um, final Jericho scene or the second-to-last Jericho scene when they're in the hotel and she comes and tells him that she loves him, um, Gable pulled her down to him when she came up from behind the sheets, and he, he had a hammer under the blanket where his crotch was. Oh. And you okay. put her hand on the hammer and she screamed and freaked out and everybody made fun of her. Well, that seems like a, well, no, I was going to say that seems like a fun prank, but I didn't <laughs> want people to take that seriously. Yeah. Cap, uh, apparently Gable wasn't very nice to her on set either. You know, that he was resentful because A, she had negotiated her salary to be six times what he made uh, <sighs> because he was under contract, not with Columbia. This is a Columbia film, but he was under contract with MGM and MGM was mad at him. I actually have a clip that I want to play about this. But MGM was mad at him, and so they uh, basically like gave him to Capra and said, make this shitty movie as punishment. They're mad at him, though, because he has this affair with Joan Crawford, right? I think that could be part of it. I mean, I think they're just also just, Louis B. Mayer is like, I'm the boss, man. I mean, but it's so interesting, though, because it's sort of like this, um, you know, it's like it, this whole idea of like loaning actors out, right? Like, so it's like, MGM and Warner Brothers would loan out their temperamental actors to Columbia as a punishment for real or imagined wrongdoings uh, because 
Harry Cohen, who is the public, you know, who's the boss over at Columbia, just like loathed paying his own contract stars. Uh, so he like, so he basically, it was like, he was basically just like kind of, it was like, it was a real shitty assignment to get like a Frank Capra movie, but also to work at Columbia. I, I love this idea that like you go there to, you know, just to kind of as, as a punishment, it's, it's sort of like, and now you realize how good you have it. Now come back here and be behaved. Yeah. And you don't make any money in the deal. You have no say in the deal. Right. If you're Clark Gable here, I think he was under contract for $2,000 a week. And so Louis B. Mayer is like charging Harry Cohn $2,500 a week to have Gable. So Harry Cohen's just like paying money to Mayer that Gable's not getting. Gable's not getting that difference in salary. Like Louis B. Mayer's making money off of it. I mean, here's Capra explaining some of the tensions. Calling the picture off, we couldn't cast it. No girl wanted to play it. Um, no man wanted to play it. I don't know. We couldn't. We couldn't cast it. When we suddenly got this call from Mr. Louis B. Mayer, who said, I, "I've got just the man for you." For, for and, and Harry Cohen says, "No, we're not going to make the picture." He says, "Harry." I'm 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 asking you to make the picture. I want to I want to punish a boy I have out here, an actor. I want to punish him. You take him. So we had to make the picture in order that Louis Mayer could punish Clark, Clark Gable. Some punishment. <laughs> it's funny though because the punishment kind of works in reverse. You know, Clark Gable gets nominated, wins an Oscar. This movie wins five Oscars. You know, which is. You, you know, Oscar Grand Slam, you know, the only ones that have achieved that are One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and Silence of the Lambs. Uh, so it's sort of like it pulls Columbia out of this like poverty row of studios. It really, it oddly backfired. I guess at one point you play Russian roulette, you're going to get a, you're going to get a bullet, but this is like a success bullet. <laughs> it's true. And I mean, I guess it's good that Capra and Gable wound up getting along because apparently when Gable was first sent over to meet Capra, he was so mm-hmm. irritated by this whole thing. That he started yelling, you know, I've been sent to Siberia. He was yelling on the lot of Columbia, like, I've been sent to Siberia. And he would look at the people on the studio, just random studio people walking by, and he would yell, why aren't you wearing parkas? (laughs) (laughs) Wow. I love it. So intense. But they made up. They made up. They made up. But yeah, you know, uh, there is a, there are a lot of stories from the set about how Capra was like, I'm gaming Claudette Colbert to do w- you know what I want her to do. Like, if she doesn't want to get naked, fine, we'll do the Wall of Jericho. But if she doesn't want to show her leg for the famous hitchhiking scene, I'll just bring in a showgirl and I'll have the, the showgirl show her leg, and then it'll make Claudette Colbert so mad that Claudette Colbert will be like, it has to be my leg. That girl's leg is not as good as mine. Whoa. Which, yeah, he could actually get away with that psychology because Claudette Colbert had famously really good legs. She said when she was a kid, she lived on the fourth floor of this apartment walk up in New York. And so walking up and down or five, fifth floor, walking up and down five flights of stairs every day, she had some of the best legs in the business. I will so, tell you, when I lived in New York and had to do a walk up, I mean, my butt was tighter than it ever will be. I mean, you can't you can't beat that. <laughs> you can't beat that uh, that that exercise. <laughs> but it is funny to me that you know you have these movies with Clark Gable. You know this character is not incredibly different from Rhett Butler. He's on the same mm, spectrum. You're right. Yeah, but isn't that yeah. true for every like kind of big star? They're always just playing a slight very. It's like I love Denzel Washington, but every now and then you see a very transformative Denzel Washington performance. But nine times out of ten, it's a character that is relatable to you as Denzel Washington or, you know, or Tom Cruise or even Julia Roberts to a certain extent. 
Yeah, I mean, it's totally fair. Like, if you go really early in Gable's career, you see uh, movies of him without the mustache from like a mm. year or two before this, which are terrifying to look at. Like, they had him just play like <laughs> they had him play a heavy because he actually was a man who did have to worry a little bit about ha- how cameras filmed him too. Like, he should have had empathy because everybody hated his ears and he was always getting made fun of for his ears. But Gable without the mustache a year before this, before he's even this good at hiding his ears. You're Mm -hmm. like, who's that guy? He does not look like the Gable he's going to become. And yet it's so interesting that he plays here and in Gone with the Wind, this character of like a macho manly man who likes to, who when he sees a powerful woman, he wants to you know drag her down just a little bit, take her down a notch, like make her respect him as much as she loves and respects herself. If you're going to look at the biography of it, I mean, we talked about this before, but Gable is a guy who when he was a young struggling actor, he married a wealthier theater woman who was 17 years older than him who Pygmalioned him. She was basically like, really? you could be an actor, but your teeth are bad. You, um, your ears are bad. You need a makeover. And she made him handsome. Like he had an older, richer wife who made him handsome, gave him his career. He was you know, a bit of a gold digger in that situation. And then he spends his whole movie career being like, oh, you women and your gold digging and your frippery ways. You're like, okay, oh, dude. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> I mean, Capra always said that, like, this movie for Gable, he felt like was the real Gable. You know, that this was the kind of character that he should have been playing in film over and over again. And he felt like a lot of the times he didn't get to play it as well as this. You know, that he had that that what he feels like this part had, that even something like Gone with the Wind Misses, is that this Gable is a man of the people. You know, right. he is a person who, like... Not even, not even like rough and tumble knows the streets, but just knows the average person. You know, he's a, he's a, he's an ordinary person. He didn't, and and um, Capra's beat on it was that Gable didn't like playing the larger than life version of this that he sometimes did have to do in Gone with the Wind. That he preferred playing the ordinary guy, picking up a woman, and not the great lover. That's interesting. I mean, do you like? Yeah, I guess. I mean, is he? I mean, is he a great lover in Gone with the Wind? It feels like. I mean, I, I don't see the difference. I mean, that's sort of like. I wonder if that's just an actor thing, like that he's like, oh, I'm different here. But it, like, I feel like it's this. I mean, it really just feels like the same to me. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, because you're right. So much of this doesn't have to do with what he's doing on, in the movie. It has to do with how people react to him, which is a little out yeah. of his control. I mean, imagine being Clark Gable. Like here it is, you know, in the 1940s. And you're Clark Gable, and you are, everybody knows that you are Adolf Hitler's favorite actor. I mean, that's wow. just a fact. That's he a loves, rough one. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody knows that Adolf Hitler loves you so much that even though you're fighting in World War II for the Americans, Adolf Hitler has told his men that if you capture Gable, you have to bring him back to him alive. I mean, how what? weird is that? <laughs> that is crazy. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. I mean... I'm trying to imagine what it would be like to walk along in that human carapace and know know this about yourself. Adolf Hitler likes me. <laughs> like, I mean, at least he knows that if he's captured, he was going to be treated really well. Um, so, Amy, I mean, talking about this movie, it also breaks a couple of uh, rules that we know here, too, which is it's also a movie where the first uh, time we ever see a bride leave someone at the altar. Whoa, the first, first, first. Yes. Apparently. I mean, I'm basing that on internet research. So the internet, always right. But always that's right. what happened here. And it's also the first time where the two protagonists never kiss. Or I guess I should say, not the first time. It's a quite unusual. 
And I didn't realize that until after I read it because we're talking about the sexual tension that they have. And I didn't miss that they didn't kiss because I felt like they're there. Like, I feel like their connection was so intense, but I, I didn't, did you miss the kiss? You know, honestly, I do miss a little bit of the seeing them together at the ending because we see them mm. hate each other and yell and we never see the makeup. We just hear it offhand. Yeah, you know, we right. hear it, we hear it, we hear it in this Jericho scene. Funny couple, ain't they? Yeah. If you ask me, I don't believe they're married. They're married, all right. I just seen the license. They made me get them a rope and a blanket on a night like this. Yeah. What do you reckon that's for? Blame fine, though. I just brung them a trumpet. A trumpet? <laughs> yeah, one of them toy things they sent me to the store to get it. Well, what in the world do they want a trumpet for? Dunno. me that just does want to see them hug or embrace or be like, yes, because we never get to fully see them in love. You know, the most romantic moment that we're given is when um, they're on separate sides of the wall of Jericho and you hear Gable talk about this island that he wants to go to with the girl that he loves. And Capra keeps cutting back to letting us see Claudette Colbert. And you see her sort of breathing a little bit heavy and how stirred she is by these words and how much she wants to be that woman. And that's so beautiful. I mean, I love this. I also love here. Let's play this clip. Even I love how Capra dials it back. You don't hear any distraction. You know, there's not noises in the background. It has been quiet in the scene, I think for three or four minutes before we get to this point, just quiet tension. And these two people who can't connect on literally different sides of the blanket, literally can't see each other, literally are not communicating. And all we have are their words that are not even connecting, you know? No. I saw an island in the Pacific once. Never been able to forget it. That's where I'd like to take her. She'd have to be the sort of a girl who would jump in the surf with me and love it as much as I did. You know. Nights when you and the moon and the water all become one. And you feel you're part of something big and marvelous. That's the only place to live. Why, the stars are so close over your head, you feel you could reach up and stir them around. Yeah, I've been thinking about it. Boy, if I could ever find a girl who was hungry for those things. So, yeah, you know, after something like that, I think part of me wants that release of just like, let them kiss, man. Let them just hug. You know, um, you get it through this other moment, which is like you really see their love. The makeup is when he goes to the father to get the money, right? Like you see it in that moment when the father realizes that he actually does love his daughter. You see their love when they're not with each other. Which is, you know, again, a staple of these movies. Like whenever they're back in their normal lives, like, oh, I long for, you know, you always did this and he never did that. You know, that, that kind of a moment. But uh, yeah, I, I guess, I, guess I, I see your point. 
And I will say it is a little bit less than romantic to me that in the big scene with her dad, he's like, I love her. And you know what she needs? She needs a man who's going to take a sock at her every every day, whether she needs it or not. (laughs) It was a different time, a different uh, time. Her dad, her dad slaps her. He spanks her. And he's like, I promise you, dad, if she marries me, I'll try to hit her every day for your sake. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, problematic. Definitely problematic. (laughs) <laughs> and yet at least I, I like how much you hear the dad loving her when he walks her down the aisle I mean what a great scene whispering to her the whole way about how she needs to leave this guy you're a sucker to go through with this that guy Warren is okay he didn't want the reward all he asked for was $39.60 what he spent on you said it was a matter of principle you took him for a ride Did you catch the film that pokes fun at this? Dun, dun, dun. Well, um, oh, wait, the walking down the aisle scene. No. Uh, what? What is that? <gasps> I'm going to take a gamble. I don't know. We've talked about this, that you love Spaceballs. Oh, yes. I, I actually was going <laughs> to reference Spaceballs earlier in the film. I was literally going to like, <laughs> when I said that, it was like the first time you ever saw someone, you know, walk out of, you know, walk off the altar. Uh, I was like, you know, and then it was uh, the mantle was taken by Spaceballs. Uh, that's so funny. <laughs> I love that you have this clip. <laughs> I do, yeah. You know, Spaceballs, for people who haven't seen it in a minute, it opens up with a bride running out of a wedding, and it ends with a bride walking down the aisle to maybe marry this dude again, and her dad is there, and this is what he's telling her. We are gathered here together again. Why didn't you tell me he didn't take the money? I didn't think it was important. May I continue, please? Besides, he asked me not to tell you. Thank you. To join Princess Vespa and Princess Valium. I'm sorry, it's the hair. Prince Valium in the bonds of holy matrimony. See it all now. Don't you see he loves me? Excuse me, I'm trying to conduct a wedding here which has nothing to do with love. Please be quiet. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Don't be sorry. Be quiet. I'm sorry. Amy, so fun. By the way, did you know that um, there's a certain moment when I was going to work on Spaceballs 2 with Mel Brooks? What? Yeah, it was a crazy. Yeah, I had a crazy um, meeting with Mel and it was awesome. It was really great. Uh, Just to hear him speak uh, about the movie that he wanted to make. And uh, obviously we didn't wind up doing it. But uh, if he ever gets to make it, and I hope he does. Uh, he's still got all that energy. He's one of the most uh, amazing people I've ever kind of interacted with. Oh, I would amazing. I would love to have a Mel Brooks movie on the list. Oh, me too. I mean, and you know, again, this is a romantic comedy on this list and not to say that, 
you know, we talk about Blazing Saddles and we talk about Shane. You know, there are these movies that are so big that I think belong on this list. They're they're part of the the fabric of our American cinema that we just don't acknowledge all the time. I mean, we've talked about this a ton. It's true. I mean, you can say that, you know, Mary Pickford was making romantic comedies, but they weren't exactly like this. You know, this really is our template for how comedies go. You can argue maybe that's not even incredibly emotionally healthy. Uh, that, mm-hmm. that, that it does be like, if he teases you, he loves you. Um, this is what love looks like, even though we actually never totally fully see them in love, 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 love. Um, but it is the mold, you know, it really, it is the, the giant jello 1934 art deco mold with all of the whipped cream and fruit inside of it that we (laughs) continue to feast on. I love that. I love that analogy. And also it gave us Bugs Bunny. Yes. I read about this. It's actually really fascinating. Uh, you know, please, I want to hear you explain it. Yeah, I'll actually um, throw the mic over to one of the animators of Bugs Bunny. This is from a documentary called Bugs Bunny Superstar, explaining that they had been on the lot trying to come up with a cartoon character. They weren't sure what Bugs Bunny was going to be like. And then they saw this movie where there's the seed where Clark Gable is leaning against the fence eating carrots. Uh, Some people thought it might have been Groucho Marx's cigar that inspired Bugs' carrot. But the idea really came from Clark Gable and Capra's It Happened One Night. As Gable and Claudette Colbert were hitchhiking by the side of the road, Gable started chomping on a carrot. Now, as I looked at him, I didn't see Gable. All I saw was a big rabbit chewing on a carrot. <laughs> That's sort of oh, just like wow. a bright, cheerful, uh, quick statement about it. But yeah, that kind of cocky attitude of Bugs Bunny. I, th- I mean, I think there are a few movie stars who we can credit for combining to create the character of Bugs Bunny. I think there's yeah. a little bit of Bogart in him, too, for sure. But yeah, this idea of I'm smarter than everybody. I'm a little bit checked out i get to call the shots and i eat a lot of carrots and i'm like hey doc i give people nicknames by the way there's a great movie with uh, clive owen where he eats carrots um <gasps> oh my gosh uh, shoot him up i love that movie and it's a great like kind of it's basically like a cartoon violent film but uh i want to just go a little bit even further on this you know uh there was a character in this film that we never meet called bugs Dooley, so that's where they got the name bugs bunny from and um, and apparently, furthermore, Yosemite Sam was inspired by Alexander Andrews, and Pepe Le Pew is based on King Wesley. <gasps> no way! Yeah, so it really it goes deep into uh, Looney Tunes, which I really, really love. I mean, to me, King Wesley uh, doesn't have the lust. He's such a cold, dead fish. But it is funny that she swaps out one king for another. You know, she's engaged to a guy named King. And the first time we see Gable, all of these men are around calling him king, treating him like a king. Gable was actually at one point crowned king of Hollywood by Ed Sullivan. There was a tiny ceremony. They put a crown on his head. If you Google clips of it, they are on YouTube. The sound quality was a little bad, so I didn't pull it. It's like staticky. And uh, one of the clips mislabels the girl that he's with as Claudette Colbert and says at the Oscars, this is not it. It's a totally different time. But it's uh, Gable and Myrna Loy being crowned king and queen of Hollywood. Oh, wow. You know, speaking of things that we can't really show because it's so visual, we haven't talked about the most memeable part of this movie, which is, of course, I mean, we've talked about a little bit about her legs being uh, so great in this film. But this is the moment that really inspires so many, so many uh, duplicates. I mean, from Laurel and Hardy to Sex in the City 
two, uh, we have seen this like show off your gams moment. And I was trying to figure out how I could play moments from it, but it, it really, everyone I think is tipping their hat to this movie every like, you know, uh, cause it's such an identifiable moment. It is. And I think it works so well because you see his frustration. It, it, I think we overuse the word mansplaining. You know, I think sometimes mm-hmm. people are just explaining things and they happen to be men. Um, yeah, I think so what I, you're saying here is that we kind of overuse that term a little bit, <laughs> you know. And, <laughs> and so I don't want to say that Gable is mansplaining hitchhiking because she doesn't know how to hitchhike. I don't think it's a mansplain if he's explained her something she already knows. It's a mansplain right, if she he's doesn't like, know. She doesn't know about the bus. She doesn't know about this. Like she's learning how to be on the road a yeah. little bit. But he is bragging about how he could write a book about hitchhiking and his complete frustration when he tries all of his moves and they fail. It sets up so great. Her kind of confident, slightly condescending way of walking out there, the way she plants her leg. She like plants it, adjusts it a little bit. It's not just like a sexy shot. It's like it's a determined movement, which I appreciate. Yeah. She's fishing. She's fish, fishing for a ride. Like, I feel like she's really displaying that leg like bait. Yeah. And you could argue that since the guy who pulls them over is pulling them uh, pulling over just to steal their luggage, he would have pulled over anyways. But I, li- I, pull, I actually pulled the audio clip of them when they do get into the car because I like how she's trying to get credit just for that. Aren't you going to give me a little credit? What for? Well, I've proved once and for all that the limb is mightier than the thumb. Why didn't you take off all your clothes? You're going to stop 40 cars. Well, oh, I'll remember that, but we need 40 cars. <laughs> so you're just married, huh? <laughs> that's pretty good. But if I was young, that's the way I'd spend my honeymoon. Hitchhiking. Yeah. Yes, sir. Hitchhiking down the highway of love on a honeymoon. Hitchhiking down, down, down. you afraid you'll burn out a tonsil? Tonsil? Me? No. <laughs> Me burn a tonsil. <laughs> My tonsils won't burn as life's corner. All right, all right, let it go. Turn. You know, if I watched uh, It Happened One Night, I would have the impression that in America, 1934, Everybody was bursting into song all the time, kind of like how I am with my cat at home all day long. My cat, I love you. Well, I mean, what did we do before we had cell phones? We couldn't look on Twitter. You had to just burst into the song. That was it. You know, just jump right in. <laughs> uh, you know, Amy, this movie is a huge hit. It, we talked about the Academy Awards love of this film. Um, we've talked about how it spawns so many things. I did find it interesting that even when this movie is so big that uh, like, Claudette Colbert doesn't even really care about it. Like she dislikes the film so much that she didn't even attend the Oscars. She found out that she won for best actress and she was about to leave on a trip. So she just kind of rushed over to the ceremony. She was in like a traveling suit, got it and like got out of there. Clark Gable, who took his award and gave it to a child who admired it. um, And telling him that the winning of the statue mattered, not the owning of it. And then that came back to Gable, um, you know, after Clark died and then Spielberg got it back. There's this, like this movie kind of has this like really 
this has a lot of weird stuff behind it. You know, you would think that everyone would be, be like bowing down. I mean, besides the fact that it's the first romantic comedy to win Best Picture, and there's only like four or five in the history of the Academy Awards, it seems like no one was passionate about it. Like it wasn't like, it just seems like, yeah, 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 it, it happened. Like it just, it, to people seem like it's a very disposable movie. Do you get that at all? Yeah, I mean, I can imagine when you read the script, it does seem disposable, right? Because nothing happens yeah. in this movie. I mean, honestly, the list of movies, it's like rich girl runs around, drives people crazy, things happen, um, she gets driven crazy, and she learns a lesson. That That's like, that could describe a gazillion films from this yeah. era, honestly. Um, so I can imagine if you're Claudette Colbert and you do this movie, you're not expecting it to be that great. And maybe you're not thinking with the distance what you're bringing to the movie. You know, maybe you're not right. cocky enough to be like, I'm going to make this good. You know, you feel like you're doing it under duress and it's hard for you to see the work that you're doing. And it is true. I mean, you were kind of, you were saying this at the beginning, you know, this movie comes out during the Depression and it didn't do that well when it was in the first run houses. You know, the rich people were not flocking to see this. It wound up not being a hit until it made it into the second round houses, until people, the the quote unquote normals, I guess, could go see this movie and they turned it into a hit. Over time. So I think the surprise, the, the the financial success of it caught everybody by surprise. That's so interesting. So I imagine then how was it reviewed? You know, this is one of those movies where there's a difference between myth and reality. Because if you ever talk to Capra about it, he would say, oh, the, the critics are snobs and they didn't get it. This movie only became a hit because of the masses, blah, 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 blah. You know, the kind of story that I think happened to him a little bit more with, um, with the one that I honestly maybe love even more than this. It's a wonderful life. Uh, but yeah, but honestly, he was really only talking about one review. Only one major critic didn't like it. Everybody else loved it. And the major critic who didn't like it, I think we've had him on here before, is Joshi Mosher. He was with The New Yorker. And he apparently, when I read his review, I sense that he didn't even see this movie as a movie. He saw it as just part of the bus film trend. And he was not interested in bus films. And he couldn't see the film for the gimmick that he thought it had. So he said, <clears throat> we come and it happened one night to the mundane matter of travel by bus. Obviously, if one is going much to the movies, it will soon be necessary to experience an overnight trip on a bus. So many pictures are concerned with the doings on of these brisk conveyances. Then he's like, blah, blah, blah. Here's the plot for a couple paragraphs. And he just says, you know what? The picture is pretty much nonsense and quite dreary, except for natural touches of the habits of the travelers, their camaraderie, the songs, the etiquette of the 10 minutes for lunch periods, the customs of the overnight cabins, all replete with hints as to this essential development of our civilization. He's only hmm. seeing the bus. It's so strange. That's such a bizarre, <gasps> so bizarre. Yeah, I can't even really... It, it's funny what people get hung up on. I mean, you know, obviously this is your business, Amy. Like, do you ever find yourself getting like that myopic about a movie that you're like, this is the one thing that I'm looking at and nothing else matters? Me? Me? Yeah. I'm, yeah. Get, I, I, get, I, all, get all wrapped up into a tiny detail and get very upset about it and then refuse to take uh, a step back. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I, I, I have to fight against it. It's yeah. true. I mean, I think about this all the time. You know, lately in the business of reviewing, it has been sitting at my house and having screeners sent to me. The, the idea of mm -hmm. seeing a movie like, say, the new Universal Pete Davidson King of Staten Island movie on my couch instead of having to go out to the theater for a public screening is strange. Um, but there has been times in all of my life where, like, 
You're aware that you're grumbling about the fact of having to drive across town to see an Adam Sandler movie. And you're grumbling all the way there. And you're mad at the movie because you're already in traffic and you feel like you know what it's going to be. And then you have to remind yourself as you sit down, you haven't seen this movie. You have to reboot. You have to be able to watch it for what it is. And But I think there is such a... um, What do you think about the minutes of irritation involved in being a critic, which aren't even that bad? You're in traffic. It's just it's L.A., so it's annoying. You have to go park in a mall. You have to go on the escalator. And you're like, this Adam Sandler movie better be worth it. And you're aware that you're watching the movie from from a step back. Yeah. Yeah. I I often feel like comedies are the ones that are kind of slighted the most in this discussion because, you know, with a movie like this, we're talking a lot about the historical context. We're talking a lot about the behind the scenes. It's hard to dissect a comedy, like really dissect it because it's not saying that much. It's kind of like, do I like these characters? Am I on board with it? I think it's sometimes hard to parse through you either like it or you don't and i think that people feel a lot of times like more vindicated not to like a comedy because it's harder to be like that was a bad drama i've always believed this like it's easier to say i didn't find that funny so it doesn't work it's not a good movie and and i understand there's this is a gray area but uh it's interesting though how you could dis- comedies i think get dismissed a lot uh mediocre comedies get dismissed very violently uh, whereas mediocre dramas really kind of get by unscathed. It's like, yeah, it's fine. Good. Not groundbreaking. Whatever. You know, like <laughs> the, I think the mumblecore movement is essentially built up with, yeah, it's good. <laughs> no, you're right. I mean, part of what I've been doing in quarantine with my boyfriend is he missed a lot of the big studio comedies of the last 10 years. He just figured he wasn't that interested in them. They only got average Rotten Tomato scores. So we've been going back and I've been making him watch the MacGrubers of the world and being like, these are important. Where have you been? You have to be watching these. You haven't seen Step Brothers. We're taking care of that right now. Oh my God. And what's his reaction to it? He really likes Step Brothers actually. And he's, he, we watched, um, he had never seen Walk Hard. So we we saw Walk Hard last week and I appreciate that he loved it. And I appreciate that he was like, I don't understand how we ever made another biopic ever again after that movie. (laughs) But it's interesting. It's like, yeah, it's, I mean, also you're saying watching a movie and not in a crowd is so interesting. Like I, I've like Step Brothers is the hardest I've ever laughed. I saw it with the test screening with a slightly longer cut. I was like, oh, my God, the same way I felt about I see Borat in a test screening. Uh, one of these movies is like you're just it, there's something to be said for the audience getting in. And sometimes when you're in a critic screening, I've been in critic screenings because like you go because someone invites you it's deadly quiet because it's not necessarily always normal people. And we're talking about this movie working really well in poorer, uh, you know, like not in the first run houses. And it's like, oh, that does make a difference. The audience that you're surrounded by, it makes a big, big difference. It so does. I mean, when you're a critic and you go and you review, say, a comedy at a screening, at a public one, it usually is the comedies where the studios make a big deal about inviting lots of random people, you know, radio giveaways and stuff to make sure that the theater is full so that people are laughing because it does make a difference. Because critics, I don't know what our problem is, but we really don't laugh when we're just around each other. Yeah. Almost like we want to, there's a protectiveness to it. Like we want to keep all the good jokes for ourselves. I noticed that was a joke. I hope everybody else didn't notice it was a joke. Right, right, right. I'm going to talk about it in my review and I'll point out the humor that they didn't even get. I don't know what it is, but it's a true, it's a true thing. And honestly, even Capra was talking about this when he made this movie. Like he said that part of the reason he had a hard time casting it, sure the script was bad, it sounds like. I mean, Marina Loy said that when she saw the movie, the script that was on the screen was totally different than what she read. But Capra also said 
you know, nobody wanted to be in this movie because actors don't like comedies. They don't think comedies are dynamic like melodramas. Nobody gets hurt. Nobody gets killed. Nobody gets raped. That's one of the things he said in there. Um, And that even finding the cast willing to be in a good movie and make it good is harder when it's a comedy. And this is back in the 30s. Well, it's interesting because I also think that you can make a beeline to a lot of great comedians who then score huge or they're the funniest people ever and then they want to make dramas. You know, and then your audience gets upset because, like, well, I came to you because you make me laugh, not because of this. And I don't, and as someone who is in this business, I see both sides of that. But it is an interesting this this push and pull of like comedy being a lower class endeavor. You know, but I, I really do believe at the end of the day, comedy is the thing that is so uniquely personal. Like, I will never, I will never like make fun of someone thinking something is funny or I hope I, I don't do that because if it made you laugh, it worked. Uh, it works. And if it doesn't make me laugh, that's okay. We're different people. But it's, there's no one thing that makes everybody laugh. That's why there are, you know, such different performers in this world. I mean, they're, you know, it's, and they're not packed with the same people. Not everyone that goes to see, you know, Ronnie Chang is going at a Dave Chappelle show. It's just not this, it's not the same crowd. It's true. And that makes me respect even more, you know, what Chaplin does. The Chaplin is saying, I make comedies and comedies are art. He's saying they're yeah. art from the beginning. Because I would say, you know, it happened when I is not that great in terms of cinematography, really. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't, I, I even see even something a little bit later, like Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, I think has more memorable images in my head besides the plot images. Like I remember the, the wall of Jericho, right. but it's not visually striking. It's more narratively striking to me, more character driven. Um, and so Chaplin is always saying that there should be no difference between humor and art. And I respect that he kept trying to prove that point over and over again, even if it doesn't seem like it caught on that deeply. Yeah. Well, I mean, we're talking about comedy, and I think that there's one thing that everyone can agree on is that The Simpsons are funny, and The Simpsons do a version of this in their show. Is there a Simpsons, Amy? No, there's not. What? I couldn't Wait a find second. one. Really? No. So what I wound up pulling instead, and this is going to be a little bit even of a confusing audio listen, is I pulled an episode from The Simpsons um, called Thursdays with Abby. And this is when a reporter reporter starts interviewing Grandpa Simpson about all of his memories. I think it's actually talking about reporters even. It's interesting. You know, I I was thinking when I was watching this film and Philadelphia story and even stuff like All the President's Men, how reporters are these figures in these films we've been watching that get to break boundaries. You know, reporters yeah. are kind of the consistent people who get to talk to high and low and mix everybody up and like say rude things and burst into places where they're not wanted. I mean, reporters are characters who get to do everything. They're kind of they're yeah. kind of superheroes when it comes to negotiating classist worlds. So I appreciate that about reporters. But the reporter in this episode, Thursdays with Abby is kind of bad and he ends up wanting to kill Grandpa Simpson so that he can write his a death story and then get a Pulitzer for it. But <laughs> one of the stories that um, Grandpa Simpson keeps telling him is the time that he was shining shoes and a train came into town and Clark Gable was on the train and he shined Clark Gable's shoes. So this is from the end of that episode where Clark Gable's ghost returns to say hi to Grandpa Simpson. Dad, I don't have the right words to say how I really feel about you, but at least I know how to beat up a guy who does. Well, at least you never tried to kill me. Just with indifference. You did good, kid. This is for the shoe shine. It's a ghost quarter, but you'll be able to spend it pretty soon. 
And that's all. <laughs> I don't know if I would say that's a good Clark Gable impression. I mean, yeah, I don't know. But I, I'm so surprised that the leg hasn't been used here. I'm, I'm really kind of blown away by it. Well, whose leg can you imagine flashing? Maybe Marge's. Marge. Could Marge flash a leg? I can't imagine Lisa flashing a leg. Uh, all right. Well, Amy, I think we've we've done it for It Happened One Night. Um, we have, is... except. Oh, yeah. Except. Except, except, I want to play you a little song, Paul. Oh, my gosh. All right. Well, uh, hit me with what you got. I will. You know, uh, I got really interested in this Bugs Bunny uh, Clark Gable connection. So I was Googling around trying to learn more about it. And I discovered, um, this is not a song, but I could sing it to you, that people who own rabbits say that rabbits should not be eating that many carrots. And that because of Bugs Bunny, people keep feeding rabbits carrots and that's not good for their health. It's too much sugar. So in a way, Clark Gable is to be blamed for modern-day rabbit obesity. That's a problem. But here's a song from Bugs Bunny singing about how much he loves carrots. Oh, carrots are divine. You get a dozen for a dime. It's magic. They fry a song begins. They roast and I hear violins. It's magic. Why do I keep myself? Other loves that I have are all really few. When in my heart I know the magic is my love for you. <gasps> it's beautiful. Well, you're a vegetarian. I hope you get plenty of carrots in your diet. Uh, I love it. Uh, I will eat more carrots. Amy, we are almost at the bottom of this list. Um, we are. This is only three more to go. Three more to go until we're done. Jaws, Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid, and Casablanca. Um, right now, uh, you know, we're in L.A. COVID numbers are high. Uh, people want to get out to the beach. We are living a real-life version of Jaws here. People are being told to stay home. They're still going out to the beach. Uh, Jaws right now, I mean, works on, on so many levels. I can't wait to watch this with you. Now, there is also a very popular meme or thing that has gone around on the internet for a long time where people make the joke that the, the mayor from Jaws 1 is still the mayor in Jaws 2, and that is the reason why we need to vote. We need to vote to make sure that we, we get these people out um, that are not protecting our interests. But um, I thought it would be funny if we had everyone call in with their own testimonials of why this mayor should stay. We should make a campaign ad for this mayor uh, I thought that could be a really, you know, what what kind of positive messaging did he do uh, in this in the interim between Jaws one and Jaws two to let the people uh, keep him in in their hearts? You're asking people to be their own little Carl Rove for this horrible mayor. Well, I just want people to, like if you were in a commercial for the mayor and you had a testimonial, be like, sure, the mayor let us all go back in the water, but you know what? That was the Fourth of July that I had my first kiss. Vote. <laughs> For the you know whatever the mayor's name is, I, I think it would be I think it would be a really powerful thing. So we can be like, yeah, we need to support this guy. You know, uh, if we didn't have if if this mayor didn't let the shark attack go in, we would have never gotten the funding for that extra wing at the hospital to take care of all those people that were victims of the shark attacks that day. You know, <laughs> show me how the infrastructure built. Show me how this mayor. You know, you are going to be a minion for this mayor to get him reelected. What do you want to say? What did he do for your town? You know what? Okay. However, I will say, as I never liked my stepmother anyway. She was eaten (laughs) by a shark. 
vote for this mayor. I mean, there's so many things. It's endless. <gasps> okay. Although, as a person who's been really enjoying listening to all of the callers call into the LA City Council and yell at them about um, reallocating how we spend our funding for this town mm-hmm. and advocating for the People's Budget LA, if anybody does squeeze, it, squeeze in a uh, eat my blank and choke on it, blank, 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 I eat my, yield my time, blank, 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 blank. Uh, <laughs> That's what maybe, I would say so to maybe, this maybe you're saying maybe, we, maybe you're saying that we should have competing ads. Some people for, some people against. Let's mix it up. Let's go back and forth. Why? Now Why? that is democracy. Yes, democracy now. Democracy Josh now. Josh shaking his head that he's got to cut this together. But it will be great. And maybe one of you out there who's really good at like um, at making the videos, we can make a little video for it. I could put all the uh, <laughs> put it all together. Uh, all right, Amy, this is so much fun. Jaws is uh, available everywhere. I mean, that's it. And there's actually a new version of it out on uh, DVD or Blu-ray, but who cares? We don't have to promote that. Um, all right. Uh, so we will see you next week on Unspooled. And remember, if you're going to call in with a, a very full-throated endorsement of the mayor, you do that at 747-666-5824. 747-666-5824. 